Good morning. Well, I'm thankful to be in worship together on this fourth Sunday of Advent. It is not yet Christmas Eve. It is still morning. And it is a treat to be in worship together with all of you, whether you made time to be here in person, made time to be here online, perhaps you're watching the stream later. Thankful, too, to you, Steve and Tyler and the choir for that incredible anthem we just heard. Thankful to Eric and all of you for trusting me with the pulpit this fourth Sunday of Advent morning. Will you pray with me? Oh God, on whom we wait and whom our souls magnify, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. So this holiday week actually makes four months now that my husband Mitch and I have called NYC home. It was only proper then this week that we watched one of my favorite movies based in the city that also happens to be one of my favorite Christmas movies, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> yes, I'm taking it. You have all seen it by that laughter. But in case you have not, the Home Alone movies are about a new McAllister family tradition in which Kevin McAllister, the youngest of seven siblings, gets stranded from his family two Christmases in a row. The first time it happens, his family is all headed to Paris, and on the day of the flight, they wake up late and scramble to get out, leaving a sleeping Kevin alone in the bed. The second year it happens, they're headed to Florida, and this time Kevin makes it to the airport where he gets lost from his family and accidentally boards a flight here to New York City. The good, news about, the good news is that Kevin is a witty nine-year-old, to say the least. He not only fends for himself, scoring a room in the Plaza Hotel where he can eat as much ice cream as he wants, but he also thwarts the plans of two burglars, Harry and Marv, who are in both of those first two films. If, if you've seen them, you know those iconic scenes in which Kevin rigs up Rube Goldberg-like machines to frustrate, injure, and ultimately catch the bandits. It's cartoon-like comedy, this violence and vengeance, and you can't help but root Kevin on as he battles the bad guys. At the end of both movies, Kevin saves the day before he's reunited with his family who never quite learns what Kevin was up to in their absence. But each time, it's his mother who finds him first. Their relationship feels central to the film. Not only do I love Catherine O'Hara, who plays Kate McAllister, but I love how her character goes from feeling like it is impossible to properly parent her son, Kevin, to realizing that she does not need to be a perfect mom to be the right mom for him. On this fourth Sunday of Advent, we have another mother on our mind for whom the task of parenting felt impossible until she realized that things are actually being made right. Today we heard the story of the Annunciation, the scene in which an angel tells Mary that she is impossibly pregnant with the Son of God. And we heard too the story in which Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who is miraculously pregnant herself. When they meet, they embrace each other, and they exclaim an emotion, which may make us assume that this is a simple, joyful reunion, 
but it is not. Luke is not particularly descriptive, but he uses words that instead imply shock, surprise, and a bit of worry. Mary and Elizabeth are both in a situation that is far from perfect. Neither of them are supposed to be pregnant, and Mary is in a particularly precarious situation as an unmarried pregnant woman living in poor Judea under Roman-occupied Israel. Yet, out of their emotional embrace, Mary proclaims that God and God's strength and mercy is actually up to something. She says or sings a song that we now call the Magnificat, coming from the first words of the Latin translation, Magnificat anima mea, or my soul magnifies. And scholars actually think that this song is one of the first eight hymns recorded in early Christianity, which means that not only does it articulate what Mary knew to be true in her body, but also what early Christians knew to be fundamental about the truth of Jesus. If you look at the Greek too, you'll notice that the verbs are in the past tense, which one scholar says stresses salvation accomplished or having come now in a new way rather than being merely hoped for. Jesus has not even been born. Mary is still pregnant, yet she says that already in her impossible and imperfect circumstance, that God's mercy and peace are here, that the Mighty One has done great things. There's another song that we may know that sings about Mary's baby as a sign of God's peace already present within an imperfect and impossible world. In the fall of 1962, songwriters Noel Regney and Gloria Shane Baker were hired to write a new Christmas song. This task was challenging as neither were particularly religious, but it was also the same month as the Cuban Missile Crisis in which the whole globe was filled with fear over the potential of nuclear warfare. Noel and Gloria were afraid. They had both lived through World War II. Noel had actually fought for the French underground when Germany invaded his home country. So they knew how brutal war could be, and they had no idea how to approach authoring a song about hope and peace in that moment. They later reflected, our little song broke us. You must realize there was threat of war at the time. It was after an uninspired and afraid session in a studio actually here in New York City when Noel walked out to see two mothers pushing strollers down the busy city sidewalk. He noticed the babies inside and how the little angels were looking at each other and smiling. Something stirred in Noel that afternoon that inspired his first lyrics said the night wind to the little lamb. We might think that the song, Do You Hear What I Hear, is just a warm song about the serene scene of a newborn Jesus. But those young faces of peace inspired an annunciation kind of moment 
in which it was revealed that God is incarnated and new life quietly cooing in mother's arms in the midst of an imperfect and impossible world. Christmas songs like this then reveal the holiday's radical edge as a reminder that God is present, providing peace and hope within a broken and warring world. Christmas music is also playing in what might be the most pivotal moment in Home Alone 2. On his first day lost in New York, Kevin wanders into Central Park, where he encounters a woman who's surrounded by pigeons, some of them perched on her, eating out of her hands. He is terrified and runs. But the next day, he sees her again and tries to flee, but this time his foot gets caught in a rock. She approaches him and he yells before he realizes that she's simply there to set him free. And then he sees that maybe she's not scary, just different. He tells her this in the blunt way only a nine-year-old can before saying, hey, let's get out of the cold. And so this woman takes Kevin to one of her favorite hideouts, the rafters of Carnegie Hall, where they overlook an orchestra performing Handel's Messiah. The woman tells Kevin about all of the famous musicians she's seen there over the years, and he asks if she often brings friends to come join her. I haven't got many friends, she says, telling Kevin that she feels ignored and unseen by the rest of the world. That's why she likes the pigeons, she says. Nobody wants them there either. Kevin resonates and says, I'm kind of a pigeon in the house just because I'm the youngest. And he promises that he won't forget her and he will be her friend. At the end of the movie, once Kevin again has saved the day and has been reunited with his whole family, who now gets to spend Christmas in a penthouse suite in the plaza, which I'm kind of jealous of, Kevin remembers his new friend, and he dashes out, sneaking away from his family to go to Central Park and find her, where he gives her a small Christmas gift that has mighty meaning as a token of their friendship. This is actually where the movie ends. It's the real conclusion of the story. It's not in a great and grandiose hotel with fancy presents and with shining family. Instead, it's in the making of these two unlikely friends who now no longer go unseen or unheard. This is the other reason I love the Home Alone movies. Christmas does not happen the way it's supposed to, and ultimately it's the underdog who understands the true meaning of the season. These films may not have a framework for the larger systems that frustrate our sense of peace in the world, like war or poverty, hunger or hatred. Something tells me that that woman needed more than the friendship of a young nine-year-old. But that sweet scene still inspires in us an imagination of something bigger than any shallow sentiment. It gives us a glimpse of a world in which the power structures that uphold our imperfect systems are overturned so that the lowly are remembered and lifted up. The late author and speaker Rachel Held Evans 
writes about the Magnificat as a song of unsentimental advent. She says that it shows us that Christmas cannot be about a bigger and better civic holiday or about the keep Christ in Christmas kind of culture wars. She says, God did not wrap himself up in flesh, humbling himself to the point of birth in a stable so that I can complain to management when a barista wishes me happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Yeah, the Magnificat indeed reminds us that this season is about surrendering power, setting aside privilege, and finding God in the smallness and vulnerability of a baby in a womb. It's not about sentimental celebrations with perfect, happy families who do everything right in the eyes of religion and proper society. Instead, it's about bearing the sacred within imperfect, humble, and unexpected places that overturn the structures of power in our world, like Kevin in Central Park on Christmas morning, and like Mary and her anticipation of impossible motherhood. In that Magnificat, Mary proclaims that God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. This is God's strength, she proclaims, before detailing what God's scattering entails, bringing down the powerful or the rulers from their throne, lifting up the lowly or humble, or one scholar says that word should be humiliated, for Mary's situation humiliated her socially. It entails filling the hungry and sending the rich away empty. In Mary's miracle, God was reversing the ruthless imagination of the elite and powerful, not denying Mary the difficulty of her situation, but rather showing her the wider reality of things. In this world full of war, injustice, and oppression, and with many impossible situations like Mary's, God is present, siding with the ones who are lowly, ignored, and humiliated, while reversing the way things work with strength and mercy generation to generation. The Magnificat gives us a new imagination of what the world might be. Just as God was incarnated in Mary's baby in that humble manger, proclaiming a different kind of kingdom than the ruthless Roman Empire, God yet waits to be incarnated in our reality, born in a way that gives us glimpses of different ways of being in a world still saturated with challenge and conflict. When writing that line about a star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite, Gloria, Shane Baker, and Noel Ragney said that they intended to evoke two images— First, that star is the star of Bethlehem, the one with which the shepherds discover this new hope for all of humanity. But second, they said, the star meant to be a bomb. Do you hear what I hear? Draws at the nativity scene and proclaims this real embodiment of peace 
while also drawing details that refer to Noel and Gloria's real fear of bombs with trailing tails in their own night sky. Two, they said that the child shivers in the cold. That line refers both to Jesus and to the real cost of human war, namely the lives and safety of children that are lost in our fragile human violence. To the lamb is a typical nativity scene, but also a very real symbol and reminder of peace. As the song depicts the devastation of war, it also speaks of and imagines what the Magnificat proclaims, that within a humble child, God has brought peace, goodness, and light. Indeed, friends, in these final hours of our Advent waiting, we have these songs with which God opens for us an imagination that's bigger than make-believe and knows what Mary knew in her body when she sang the Magnificat. Where our lives feel impossible, in small complexities and in the scariest of situations, God delivers us and calls us blessed. Where we are hungry, wherever we are in need, God does not ignore us to add to those who are already powerful, but God sees us and comes to our aid. Even in a world in which, in the same land from which Mary sang the Magnificat, thousands and thousands and thousands of children have died over recent weeks due to ruthless retaliation masquerading as righteous war, Even yet, God remembers the lowly and lifts them up. And in our lives and world, wherever we yearn for a peace more powerful than fleeting holiday feelings, God looks at us with favor. I can see what the Mighty One has done. I hear that song of God's mercy. Do you? Amen.